Let's continue now through the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We'll be finishing as we handle verses 31 through 42. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Show us by your word what you would have us understand, what you would have us know about Jesus, about our desperate need for life in him. Show us what we need to know about salvation and the new creation that those who are in Christ enjoy. Father, bless now the preaching of your word to this end, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have here in this passage, um, in this gospel, something that the other gospels do not have, and that is a first-hand eyewitness account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is from the Apostle John. That's one of the distinct parts, uh, the distinctives of this particular gospel. And John, here in this particular passage, mentions to us that, that he was there that he is testifying to these things. He gives this firsthand witness of the crucifixion of Jesus, choosing the details that he does. And once again, we have details in this gospel that are not in any other gospel. John does not handle many of the, of the accounts that both or all Matthew, Mark, and Luke will all, all handle in their gospels. And instead, he is going to specifically mention particular events, particular circumstances surrounding the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. He does so, and he clearly states why he does so here in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. You have in front of you, and you are hearing the testimony of an eyewitness 2,000 years ago who was there when Jesus Christ was crucified, hung on a cross, dead, and buried. And you are hearing it according to the inspired word of God, as though John himself was able to bring to you firsthand the information that he saw, that he experienced. 
And by means of God's Spirit, you are to hear as though you are hearing from the firsthand eyewitness what happened. And what he wants you to see, not only in these verses, but how it ties together to the entire gospel that he has been presenting to you now some 20 chapters into this book. Hanging lifeless on the cross, signs are given that new life will flow from a new temple. It is the preparation day and the spotless lamb's blood is spilt for a great exodus will now take place. A man is put to death in a garden and from his side a new bride comes forth. Paul wrote in his epistle to the Corinthians, he said, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some will take that passage and they will misuse it and say that the only thing that we are to preach is just a straightforward gospel message, nothing but uh, the, the bad news, the good news, and what you need to do in response, which obviously is not what Paul meant because Paul wrote all kinds of things and preached all kinds of things. But what he said is, everything I'm preaching about, everything I'm speaking about finds its center in Jesus Christ crucified. It's good to summarize the gospel rightly. Christ came to save sinners. But John is writing his gospel in ways that expound far more what it means that Christ was crucified for us, for you. Remember his prologue. He begins um, with, with these words, um, in the beginning, in the beginning, hearkening immediately back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And then he gives us his purpose for telling us this and everything else that runs through uh, his gospel by saying in this verse, verse 35, which I read, and then in, in the end of chapter uh, 20 as well, where he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is preaching Christ crucified. John is preaching that Jesus Christ, the man, the Son of God, died on a cross and that his blood was spilt for you if you will have ears to hear. And so let's consider now, if you keep all of this in mind and you consider now, let, let's look and see what, what, what is John's purpose? Why is he telling us the particular events, the particular circumstances, the particular nuances that he wants to bring out in the death of Christ? He says, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may be taken away. And then, and then soldiers are sent, officials who, who are, are, are following orders, and they go and they break the legs of the, the, uh, of the victims or the, or the criminals on the left and on the right of Jesus. And, and then they come to Jesus and they see already that he's dead. John wants you to make sure you know this, that these soldiers saw that Jesus was dead. And so the, this, the, the first, really, the first testimony, the first thing that's to come out from this passage is that Jesus was dead. I mean, he was really dead. We, we have multiple well-trained soldiers who do not follow Pilate's orders to break the legs of Jesus. They, they wouldn't do that unless they knew he was dead. They knew he was dead. But nevertheless, a spear is thrust in his side to confirm the matter, both his death, and probably John is recording this also to make the, the point that, that Jesus was a man just like us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt with us. 
And, and John will deal in his epistle with this growing Gnosticism, this idea that all, all matter is bad and the spiritual world is really good. And so Jesus could not be the Christ. He, he could not actually be a, a man. He, he would have to be, some, that was some kind of phantasm. That was some kind of um, illusion to everybody. No, a soldier stuck a spear in his side and blood and water came out. He was dead. He was flesh and it had died. In 1 John chapter 4, um, uh, John writes these words. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, now listen, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. You see, he's already fighting against this. Just, just decades, just a decade or two later. That, that, that Jesus Christ, no, Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and, and he, so he came as a man, and he is God. And then verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. There already was this Antichrist teaching that Jesus was not the Christ. He was not, he, he, he was not fully man and fully God. He, he was not God come in the flesh. That would be impossible. That would be an insult. No, that was the gospel. A man came, a, a, a man what came, and it turns out that man was God who took on flesh and humbled himself, humbled himself even to the point of death. And then following this, we have two men of high reputation, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who who's, who's now shows up for the third time in the gospel. Joseph of Arimathea has never shown up before. He only shows up in, 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 this, in this event. It is in the other gospels as well. And it turns out that, that if you have a dead body... Um, and that, that body has died on a cross as a criminal, his body is going to either hang on the cross for days um, and decompose and, and, and be a, a warning, a sign of warning to, to everyone else. Or if it's near a Sabbath day, um, the Jews might ask for that, those bodies to, to come down off the cross and not be there and defile the land. So we have two men that want to honor Christ and they don't want to... Um, they, they don't want to, uh, become, well, they're willing to become ceremonially unclean as they take Jesus' body and prepare it for burial. They're willing to lose their status of being able to now participate in the, in the coming Sabbath because they're going to handle this dead body. And instead of being thrown in a mass grave, which, which would have happened with crucified criminals, they very carefully make sure that Jesus is placed in a tomb. John wants to make that point because that, that would be unusual. That, that someone who had died on a cross would be placed in a tomb and be the only one in, in that tomb, as opposed to just being thrown in a mass grave. We know where Jesus' body was. We have many witnesses who know exactly where Jesus' body was. And so all of these people handle this body. There's all the preparation made, and he is, his body is laid in a tomb. And then John wants to make this note also. He's laid in a tomb that Joseph of Marimathea has. Nobody else has been in this tomb, and it's in a garden. It's in a garden where no other body had been laid. So what do we have? First of all, we have this, that Jesus, the man, Jesus, the man, come in the flesh, was dead, was cold dead. But there's so much more that John wants us to see beyond this. And, it, and it's tied to the scriptures that he will point to from the Old Testament, and, and the meaning of the, that those scriptures were pointing to, 
It has to do with the, the details that he then gives us. Why does he begin again by telling us, he'd already mentioned before, but here he says again in verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Remember, this is Passover and then the week of unleavened bread. Passover was a one-day celebration. It was followed by a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can find the details in Exodus 12 and Numbers 28. During that week, there, the, the Passover would fall on a different day of the week according to the lunar calendar. But, Passover, or, but Sabbath would always be on Saturday, and, and Friday would be a preparation day in, prep, in preparation for the Sabbath day. You get everything in order, in order that you're able to celebrate and, and just rest on, on the Sabbath day. And so this day of preparation is, is taking place, and everything is to be, you're, you're to be clean before God. Well, it would have been a curse on the land to have a man hanging on that holy day, according to Deuteronomy 21-23. And so the priests asked the Romans to break the legs of the prisoners to quicken their death. Now think about that for a second. You have, you have, you have high priests who are concerned about being ceremonially clean before God on the Sabbath following Passover. These same high priests, so concerned about being right before God, ceremonially clean, have murdered. They know they have nothing against Jesus. They have murdered and, sought and, and made sure that he's murdered in a humiliating way, the very Son of God. This is sick political irony. Yet even in these details, these wicked hypocrites see to it that another prophecy of Christ is testified to. And so he makes, makes sure that we see this in verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. There's two reasons this is really important notice. First of all, it is, um, it, it, it is a fulfillment of scripture. It is a fulfillment of scripture that um, in, in Psalm 34, 20, it says, um, not one of his bones shall be broken. And, and this seems to be the verse that is being pulled out and is being then quoted. But there's something more here as well. This is Passover week. This is the week where the Passover lamb is and, and the exodus, the, the being brought out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is celebrated by all of God's people and looking forward to a greater exodus, a greater deliverance. Jesus is the lamb of God. And, and only in John's gospel do we get that proclamation from John the Baptist. Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, the Passover lamb was just that. The Passover lamb was sacrificed, and its blood was spread over the doorposts of the family's house so that the angel of death would pass over and the firstborn of the family would not die. <clears throat> Kids from VBS, you remember the 10th plague, and that was the 10th plague where all of the firstborn of Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh's household and, and all of Egypt would die that night. And so would have all of the firstborn of Israel unless they had taken the Passover lamb, taken the blood, and, and put it on the, on, on the lintels and on the doorposts of the house. And they were promised that if they did that, the angel of death would see blood had already been shed. Someone else's blood had already been shed, and they would pass over, and the judgment would not fall upon that household. The lamb was then eaten in, that, in the house, 
And, and very specifically, in Exodus 12, 46, we are told it was not to be taken out. It was to be eaten by that family, by that household, in the house, and not one of its bones was to be broken, is this cryptic message that's a part there. The Passover lamb was not to have one of its bones even broken. This final plague upon Egypt brought forth a deliverance of Israel from their bondage. What they were eating was not just a remembrance that, that God had passed over the curse that would have come upon them, but they were eating and remembering that they were having this meal, and they had this meal with unleavened bread because they were gathering together quickly and they were going to get out. They were going to be delivered. Passover was a remembrance of a great deliverance, of, 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 of being taken out from some kind of bondage. Theirs was a physical bondage, but it pointed to the spiritual bondage that all of us are under. We are all slaves in Egypt. We are all born in bondage to our sin. And Jesus Christ comes as a Passover lamb. He comes and is sacrificed on our behalf. And not only are our sins forgiven, but we are delivered. We're brought out from that darkness, from that death able to serve him. Listen to the words of the promises that were given to the first Passover partakers and those families. <coughs> Exodus 12. <clears throat> and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. And then just the next chapter, 13, verse 3. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You're free. After 400 years, you're free. For by the strength of the hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. That's what they would celebrate. That's what they would remember every Passover. And they would partake of this meal, this Passover meal. And not one of the bones of the Passover lamb would be broken. John wants you to notice that because of the circumstances of Jesus already dying on the cross, these, these soldiers would come and they don't break his legs. Just a, a side note, in, course you, in case you don't know, um, the breaking of the legs would, would speed up the death because when you're hanging on a cross, um, you, you, you usually don't, you don't die of, of uh, so much loss of blood, but as asphyxiation, you, you, basically, um, you, you basically drown. You're, you, the only way you can get a, a breath is to push against a, the, your, your legs and lift with your arms, which are now both pierced into, the, into this cross, and push up in order to get a breath. And when you break the legs, then you're no, no longer able to push up and get that breath. That's what speeds the, the death of the criminal. And so his, his bones are not broken, just as God had, had promised and prophesied. But then there's this other interesting thing that John brings out, that, that, that they had pierced his side. And, and probably he, that soldier had pierced his side to make sure he was dead, make sure he didn't flinch, make sure it was really true. He pierces it deep enough that blood and water come pouring out. Why, why would John want to make sure that we see this? The piercing of Jesus' side and water and blood coming out. Well, John alone tells us of this event, and, and John tells us why he said it. He says in verse 37... And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, you could, you could think, okay, so another, <clears throat> this comes from Zechariah chapter 10. You know what that's all about? Zechariah chapter 12. What's, what's going on there? 
Well, Zechariah is the prophet that is one of the prophets that is, is, exists after the exile and the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple and still the falling away, the disobedience of, of Israel of, of, in the midst of it. And the, this is a, in the middle of an oracle of woe and of lament upon, uh, upon Jerusalem and their unfaithfulness. And yet woven into it, as the prophets so often do, is this promise of something um, another deliverance that's going to take place or a new temple that is going to be built, even when the first temple is, is just being, re, or the new temple is being rebuilt. In, in Zechariah chapter 12, it says these words, it says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. He will pour out on the house of David and on the, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on whom they have pierced. And John says that is being fulfilled as Jesus is dying on the cross, or that is being fulfilled in that day. That, that is being fulfilled in, in that, those moments of time of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and of course, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What Zechariah had promised hundreds of years before was now taking place in that generation in that generation. This prophecy then was true, or was, was true for the true house of David. That is the church, the Jews and Gentiles who would hear the words of God and then spoken in tongues to all the nations, the great wonders of God. This prophecy was for the true house of David where the spirit of grace and supplication, that Holy Spirit, would be poured out. And so the prophecy was forward-looking to the church that would be filled with the Holy Spirit as the gospel was preached. And so listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 33, when Peter, after the Spirit is poured out, Peter stands up and he says, Therefore, speaking of Christ, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is all tied together. The one who is pierced is the one at, through whom there would be this great outpouring. This great outpouring that would bring forth the, the gospel flowing out by means of the Holy Spirit to all the peoples. Now, if we went back to Zechariah, I'm not going to have you go there now, but if you went back and you read the, the very next part of that verse, it talks about they look on him who they pierced and they will mourn. They will mourn. It says the men will mourn and the women will mourn. And in the, temp in, in the temple, the men will mourn and the women will mourn. And they all will mourn. It goes on and on about them mourning. And they're mourning. It says they will mourn as for his only son, as one would mourn for his only son. Well, who is the only son? And, and why would there be this mourning? Because in that, in that generation, of course, as the Holy Spirit is poured out, and they look on whom they have pierced in the preaching of the gospel... Because that's what happens in, 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 in Peter's preaching. He turns to them and said, you crucified him. And in the preaching of the gospel, they see the one that they have pierced. They see what they have done. They see what should have happened to them. And now by God's Holy Spirit, they realize it happened for them in him. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And so when Jesus Christ is preached, when Jesus Christ crucified is preached, by God's, by God's Holy Spirit, men and women are cut to the heart. They see Christ crucified in the preaching of the gospel. They see their sin and God's wrath on that cross. 
They see their guilt and shame before God. And they see the love of God placing it on his son on their behalf. And they're cut to the heart. And they say, what shall we do? What do I do? And of course, you know what Peter said. Believe. Repent and be baptized. And the promise is to you. The promise of what? The promise of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and new life is to you and your household, to your children. And to all far off who call upon his name. It's going everywhere. Zechariah's prophecy was being fulfilled, and John wants you to know that. And so his body was pierced. But not only was his body pierced, it says, then out of his body comes blood and water. Blood and water. Um, there, are, there are medical reasons that people try to that t- talk about in terms of why that might have been blood and water that were coming out. No indication that that's what John has in mind. I want to give you the medical reasons for why blood and water came out. What is, what is this blood and water? What's important about that as it flows out of the side of Jesus? So he testifies of this. Well, remember, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God in the old covenant ceremonies always included the shedding of blood and ceremonial washings. It, it always included this. The shedding of the blood of a substitute and some form of a ceremonial washing. Many would consider the water and blood then to point towards baptism and the Lord's Supper, the means of grace, of washings and of toning for sin. It seems like a stretch at some time. We don't actually have any other time where only blood is referring to the Lord's Supper. Until we consider a few more things about this. Consider that this blood and water flowed from his side. John spoke and was speaking often in creation language. He certainly did from the beginning in testifying to who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I told you that, and then it goes on. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made. There's creation language. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Everything that was made came forth from Jesus, from the word of God. That's what he wants to say as he begins the gospel. Jesus, the one who created Adam, then came to be the new Adam. Paul would say and tell us that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the, he is the father of the new human, humanity. He, he's, the, he's the one through whom the, the new covenant comes, comes forth, just as Adam was with the old covenant. Jesus is the one who created Adam, and now he has been made the new Adam. He has taken on the flesh of the new Adam. And where do we find him in this moment? Well, verse 41 tells us, carefully, he's in a garden. He'll be buried at a tomb in a garden. It was in the first garden that Adam was put into a death-like sleep, and then God took a rib from his side, fashioning a bride for him. And God uses that which comes out of Adam to make him a bride. Well, he uses that which flows out of Jesus to make him a bride as well. Bridegroom symbols have been going on throughout the Gospel of John. So this is the, the, the idea of bridegroom or bride or, or a, a bride being made for, for Jesus is not 
I'm not dragging this into this text. It's, it's been running through the scriptures as we've been going through the Gospel of John. It, we, we have Jesus as the better bridegroom in chapter 2, providing celebration wine instead of that ceremonial water. He's the better bridegroom when that bridegroom, representing the old ceremonial water, runs out. Jesus is able to fill the, the, these, these water containers, these ceremonial cleansing tubs, it fills them with gallons of wine. It fills them with gallons of water, and then it turns into wine. John the Baptist tells us that he is the friend of the bridegroom, speaking of Christ in John chapter 3. He's the shoshpin. He, he's the best man who is going to make sure that the bride is brought to the bridegroom, that the bridegroom is brought to the bride, and he's doing that in the preaching of repentance. And then Jesus meets a woman in a well in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, who does not have a lawful husband, and instead he brings her to faith in him. And we're, we see throughout the Old Testament over and over again that when a man meets a woman at a well, a wedding is about to take place. And then later in chapter 20, just to give you a hint to the next chapter, we will see even more garden and Adam and bride imagery. Jesus is being, we're being told here, not only we're going back to creation and a new creation, but to a new bridegroom, a new Adam, and a new Eve that is coming forth. The church is the bride of Christ. And the whole story of redemption is the great love story of Christ redeeming and glorifying his wife. In the first creation, God puts Adam into a death-like sleep, takes a rib out, and from the rib fashions a bride. In the new creation, the second Adam is put into a death that he will come forth from as in a resurrection. It's not just a death-like sleep. It's real death, and it's going to be real resurrection. And he takes from his side blood and water, and from that water, blood and water, he fashions unclean, impure sinners into the bride of Christ. In both instances, we have God taking from the side of Adam and creating for himself, making for himself a bride to present to his son. And that's what Revelation 21, ending the, ending the scriptures for us, points to exactly what God is doing. Creating a bride for his son, to be presented to his son in a glorious wedding celebration, the most glorious wedding celebration that ever will be, where the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, in her full consummation with her bridegroom, enters into an eternity of bliss and joy. Well, just tack on to that one more thing. We've got blood and water, and we have temple language. We have temple language also. Jesus is also the temple. He, he told us, he, he cleansed the temple, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. When he cleansed the temple, and, uh, in John chapter 2, verses 19, speaking of his body, uh, John comments in that, he says, it's not until after the resurrection that they realized that he was speaking of his body, but Jesus knew he was speaking of his body when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Blood was always shed at the temple. Blood was always shed at the temple, and throughout the gospel, waters of life are everywhere. So you, you, you remember that only at the temple could there be blood sacrifices made. We've got to get it out of our minds. Sometimes we think that in, the, in, uh, in all of the other gatherings and the assemblies and the synagogues throughout Judea or, or the rest of Israel that there would be sacrifice. There were never any sacrifices. Sacrifices could only be made at the temple. That's where blood is. Blood is found at and on and in the temple. 
But then also we have throughout and throughout John's gospel, we have water everywhere. One commentator says, if you just take the gospel of John and ring it, water's going to just pour out everywhere. Yep, you have, you have Jesus filling the ceremonial basins with water and turns them into wine, chapter 2. You have Jesus telling Nicodemus that he must be born of water and the Spirit, chapter 3. When Jesus meets a woman at Jacob's well, he offers her living water, chapter 4. A man cannot be healed at the old covenant pool near the temple, so Jesus takes the place of the pool and heals the man, chapter 5. He stills the waters of the storm, and then he walks on them in full authority, chapter 6. On the last day of the feast of booths, Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Chapter 7, he heals a blind man with water from his mouth. Chapter 9, and he washes his disciples' feet with water. Chapter 13, water, water everywhere. What is flowing out of Jesus' heart? What is flowing out of this new temple? Well, there's another picture of water flowing out of a temple, isn't there? There's actually two pictures for us. Two pictures of a new temple. Two pictures of a new temple where the water flows out. First is in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, of course, we have this, the, all these details about the new temple that is being built. And then Ezekiel is told to go. And he not, he's, he's, he's told to notice this river that's flowing. It's a very small stream that's flowing out of the temple. And he says, I want you to measure this. And, and he goes out so many steps and it's up to his ankles and so many more steps and measures out and it's up to his knees and so many more steps. And it, it goes out further and further and further and it gets deeper and deeper till it's over his head. And then we are told that it, it, it flows out and heals all of the waters, all of the other waters, as it flows out over all of the earth. Water that will bring healing to the nations. Water flowing out further and further, deeper and deeper, with trees on its banks, bearing life fruit and leaves of healing. That's in, Ze that's in Ezekiel 47, but also in Revelation 22, the other picture, where flowing out of the brand new temple, this, the, 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 the place where God's people have gathered, will flow out a river. There'll be trees on every side. The trees will provide food in all 12 months, and healing through their leaves for all of the nations. I think all of this is right here as, as John, and John wants you to see it as he tells you about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is what he wants you to see. Paul said, I, de I, I determined to, know, to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there's much to say about Jesus Christ and him crucified. What are you to see? in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Where do you to see in the death of Jesus Christ? The first thing I think that is really important, maybe most important, is you are to see that there is something far worse than death. There is something far worse than death, and that is sin. Sin is worse than, worse than death. You see, death is the consequence of our corruption. It is not the source of our corruption. Preaching Christ crucified means calling men to repentance from their casual attitude towards sin while trying to be so hard to avoid death. We are a nation, we are a people, we are a generation that shudder at death. We are so afraid of dying. We are so afraid of sickness. We are so afraid of weakness. We are so afraid of making sure that we can live as long as possible. 
we'd keep trying to figure out all kinds of ways to take care of that problem of death. We got people in, in Silicon Valley trying to, to figure out um, ways to, to freeze our bodies to stay alive forever until all of the cures are found for us. We, we have them trying to figure out all kinds of special ways to put um, all kinds of things into us that will, will, will make us live for all, all kinds of longevity. We're, we're told that, that, that founders of um, Amazon and Microsoft and others pour billions of dollars into all kinds of research to figure out how to stop this thing called death. And nobody cares about sin. Nobody cares about sin. We shudder at death. How much more should we shudder at sin? Jesus is victorious over death. In Jesus Christ, we have victory over death. If we're in Jesus. But the only way you can be in Jesus and, and not have to shudder at death is if you shudder at your sin. If it's cut to your heart what your sin does in the face of God. What your sin does outside of Christ and the hope of forgiveness through the atoning blood and the, and the washing of the baptismal waters and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you think so lightly of your sin and worry about the day of your death for all the wrong reasons. Jesus himself was the one who said, do not fear those who can kill the body. And I think he means more than just individuals. He means fat content, nicotine, and cancer cells, and viruses, and people that could kill you. Don't, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not be afraid of them, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who you're to fear. That's who you're to fear. We, we fear death far too much because we do not fear God enough. It, it's almost silly when you think about it. Somebody who is an unbeliever who has no hope of eternal life and, and makes, no, makes no bones about it, Oftentimes says, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. I don't even know if, if I'll be conscious when I die. I don't even, I'm not even going to try to figure that out. But boy, I'm sure going to make sure I take these vitamins and I do these things and I get a few extra years out of this thing before, before whatever, for eternity. How foolish. How utterly foolish. We are to take our sins seriously, far more seriously than we take death. Second, Second, then, if that is true, and you are cut to the heart, then you are to see and to believe. You are to see and believe. You're to hear and believe. You're to hear the gospel and see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ died to take care of that sin, to take care of your guilt, to take care of your uncleanness, and instead to give you eternal life in the spirit and the hope of the resurrection of your body, in that final day, just as Christ's body will be resurrected from the dead, so your body will be resurrected. You know, it's an interesting, interesting thing that takes place here. It says, um, they talk about the body of Jesus and the body of Jesus and the body of Jesus, that they do all these things. And if you look at verse 42, it says, so there they laid Jesus, not his body. I don't think it's right for us to say, when we're looking at the, the body of a deceased one, to say to someone, well, he's not there. What do you mean he's not there? We mean he's not there. We're not just souls. 
We're bodies and souls. We're body and soul. This is why it's been the tradition in the Christian faith to bury a body and, and, not, to, and, and, and not to burn it, which was a pagan practice for centuries, because it was supposed to be a release from the body for the soul. Now, I know that people that have cremation take place aren't thinking that necessarily, but you ought to think about where historically these things come from. Why are bodies buried? Because they're going to be raised from the dead. Just like a seed, just like a farmer plants a seed in the ground, he expects it's coming back, and he expects it to come back far more glorious than it was when it went in. It wasn't just Jesus' body that was laid in the tomb. Jesus was laid in the tomb. Jesus was laid in the tomb. And on that final day, we will be raised in glorious bodies just as Jesus was raised. So yes, in the gospel, your wicked sin is declared without excuse, without apology, but so is the tonic for it, the cure, the reversal. So is the way out of your prison. So is the way out of the house of bondage that you have been in. The doors are open wide for those who have ears to hear. And when God grants faith, it is the blood sacrifice of Jesus to atone for God's holy wrath, and it is the cleansing waters of baptism and the new life of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you by faith. And third, we are to see the church as the bride of Christ. We are to see this community as one, as one body, one body, the bride of Christ, dearly loved, rescued, and cared for by him. And so we respond as a faithful bride, delighting to honor and obey. And we are to be as well, at the same time, the church militant, a mighty river flowing, flooding the world, bringing the story of Jesus to every family, every nation. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus, or what I actually think was John reflecting on the words that had been given to Nicodemus some years before um, in John 3, 16, and then 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now you say, yeah, flowing river around here, the church, the bride of Christ, militant, looks a little more like a puddle here and a puddle there. Maybe a small pool over there, a larger pool or a spring, but flooding over flooding waters, clean everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are many that are telling us yes, and that's it. That's it. This is all we're going to do to this world. But Jesus had something far more to tell us about a temple that was, water that was flowing out of the temple. And yeah, there was, there's a time where it's just up to the ankles. But then it grows. And it goes out further and deeper, up to the knees and the waist and the neck. And then it overwhelms everything. And even the, the Dead Sea is cleansed, he says. That's what Jesus wants you to see. We're in the middle of something. We're not at the end of something. In fact, we may be just the beginning of something. We are the temple of God and the flowing from that temple. We are privileged to live in the gospel age of hope, not in the gospel age of dread. The gospel age of hope. The time when the gospel conquers and rules. The time when the fountain of forgiveness to all nations has been opened wide 
for sin and all uncleanness to be taken care of through Jesus Christ. This is what it means to preach Jesus Christ crucified. Hear the good news. Hear the good news and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, you sent your son that many would be saved, brought into the church of the living God, transformed, cleansed, forgiven, made new. Thank you for the work of the cross, for all Jesus accomplished for us, and by your spirit pierce hearts here, pierce them with faith, and make us faithful servants to you. In Jesus' name, amen.